a Pacific Western flight is landing in Cranbrook when they encounter an unexpected complication. What causes flight to need to go around and ultimately crash? Welcome back to the Heart Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. It's been a while. It's been a minute. Been a second. Uh, We've recorded other stuff between the last episode and this one, but not an episode. Yes. So it's been two weeks since we've done an episode. Yes. We have, hold on, we have a few patrons, or at least one. One. I, think, I know of at least we one. we have to thank. Rachel. Yes. Thanks, Rachel. Hello. Welcome. What about Madden? I, I don't think we've thanked Madden. Yeah. Was Thank Madden, you, Madden. Was Madden a rejoin? No. No. The name is familiar. We think Cheryl, right? That's yes. Yes. November 2nd. I yes. Would, we yeah, yeah. Okay. We have. So I thank think, you. I think the you. last one we thanked was Pre. We're really good at this. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. appreciate your pa- patronage. Wow. Yes, my thank brain's you. Not, my brain's not working. Here, here we are. So you should do all the normal stuff. Yep. As always, check out the Patreon. You can also... Uh, I've been like messing around with trying to figure out how to get the stupid like thing to listen on the website because you can't do it through the thing that we post it through anymore. You have to take it from Spotify to do it. It's a whole thing. Got it. Anyway, the I think yeah, I figured it out because Squarespace is being really stupid. Yeah. So now you can actually listen. In. Oh, if you would like to look at the pictures and listen at the same time, you can do so on our website. Yes. Oh, hey, hey, hey. Hey, 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 hey. Although it might take a little bit longer because I have to physically do that separately what after the episode is posted. Which that is, is a pain. A pain. But it, it's a thing. Okay. Uh, send in some listener stories. We got a couple more in. Uh, I think we have up to six now, which okay. we need three more to make another listener episode. Yep. So if We you... still have one more to record before that. Yes. But we're almost there. But we've recorded another one. That's what a part of what we recorded last yes. week. You'll probably hear it by the time this comes out, but maybe not. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Depends on when Paige gets that to us. So Yes, that is okay. Paige gets to take their time because yes. they it are is, <laughs> yeah. It is pretty good. The Well, I shouldn't say it's pretty good. It's great. The listener episodes are always great. I know they don't get a lot of listens compared to our normal episodes, but definitely go listen to them. I managed to not cry on this one. Yeah, this one wasn't a crier, but it definitely had a lot of funny parts. Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. Oh, God. <laughs> Keep that up. That, that I mean, I love any of the emotions you give us because it just they're so good. Uh, you should also check out the newsletter, which you should have gotten already. And if you haven't, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> It'll come out soon. Uh, I am realized that I hadn't done that yet, and I'm going back to school tomorrow. And I'm like, you got oh, a couple great. days. Yeah. Will it be done before then? No, no. clue. But it might. Maybe. I might get some motivation. I'm having some seasonal depression issues. So um, it might yeah. get done by Friday. <laughs> you, get, you should get a sunlight. You're getting, you got concert time coming up, though, real quick. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> oh, by the way, speaking of that day, mm-hmm. did you know that we were supposed to pick things for the tasting? No. No. So she sent us an email. We got to pick things for the tasting. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I thought we were just going to taste everything and then pick. Yeah, you would think. You'll figure it out. How do I know what I want to taste if I'm going to taste things to figure out what I know what I want to have? I don't know. Anyways. Science and shit. Okay. Okay. So, do all the normal stuff. We got some recommendations on... Um, By the way, I have updated our recommendation list. Okay. Okay, y'all, you know how we were like, hey, we really need recommendations so we can get to a year out? Holy crap, now we have a lot of recommendations. We're in February of 2025. Woo! <laughs> we are so far beyond a year now, which is incredible. We've never been this And there's more out. after I did that. Oh, so. I'm sure there oh, are. God. Now, to be fair, and I'm going to preface this now because everyone's listening to this because the episode hasn't started yet. Please do your due diligence before yes. you recommend something. Yes. Look if see if there's a report. Yes. And if it's long enough. Make sure it's long enough. If it's five pages and there's like no analysis, we can't do it. Yes. Please make sure it's in English. <laughs> Preferably. Or much. can be translated. Yes. And make sure there is a report because there's been a few that were sent to us 
of um, like helicopter crashes and stuff like that where mm-hmm. I can't find a report. And if you can, wonderful, then we will put it on the schedule. But if I can't find a report and I can't find it in English and I can't see that it's long enough, I'm going to say I'm sorry. Can't do it. Right. So please do your due diligence. I know it's a little bit of effort on your part, but then you don't have to be disappointed when we tell you we can't do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. Exactly. So don't request Lance 508. We're not doing it. No. There's not enough information on Lance 508 to yes. do it. Or the, least, or the big TW800. We're not doing that right. either. That one we won't touch. Lance 508 we would love to do, but we will not be doing for the foreseeable future. If anyone future. wants to go fly your ass down to Peru. Or if you live there. Or that. And, and scan us a copy of the report. Would love that. 100%. However, we're not doing that. No. So. Anyway. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Pacific Western Airlines Flight 314. Thank you to Kevin for recommending this. Kevin! We haven't had a recommendation from Kevin in a while. It occurred to me that the mistake that I made last week with saying 314 instead of 134 was because I had read the spreadsheet. (laughs) And this episode followed that. And this is 314. So. I see. It makes a little sense once I... Realize why I made that mistake. What is what was the airline again? Pacific West. Pacific Western Airlines. Is isn't that a Canadian? They are yes. Canadian. They oh, were. I remembered. They were <laughs> Canadian. Yes, they were Canadian. They don't exist anymore. Yeah. Oh. Well, I know they don't exist now, but yes. I was wondering if they were Canadian. There was yes. a reason that I put in the group chat a link to the Canadian aviation regulations. I didn't read the link. I just that's okay. That. Oh. <laughs> yes, but it does have to do with the fact that they are <clears throat> Canadian. Canadian. All right. <laughs> We'll talk about all that later on. This accident occurred on February 11th of 1978. So, a while ago. Yes. This was a Boeing 737-200 with the tail number Charlie-Foxtrot-Papa-Whiskey-Charlie. The 737-200, we've talked about it before, had the famous JT-8D cigars under the wing. Those are the engines. Had the cigar engines, which is pertinent. I didn't even look at that detail you and I are both thinking about, and I don't know what... Yep. So. Uh-huh. It's pertinent. These are the old rocket 737s, made a lot of noise, cigars under the wings, stretched on both ends. This was a quite the flight, a lot of short hops. This is a flight from Fort McMurray in Canada to Edmonton to Calgary to Cranbrook to Castlegar. Which, I know one of those. Two of those. Two of those, I would hope. Edmonton and Calgary? Yeah. Yes. Those are the big cities on this route. I just listened to a TikToker absolutely destroy Edmonton. How? Went on a whole rant about how Saskatchewan is better. Got it. I wouldn't know. Than Alberta? Yeah. Which is where Calgary and Edmonton are? But she had a particular thing against Edmonton. Oh, she was she was doing one of those filters, like, oh, what Canadian city am I? And she's like, I would love to be almost anything. And then it turned to Edmonton. She's like, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn. Well, Alberta and Saskatchewan are the two landlocked. Uh, yeah, she said that. They're the two landlocked territories or uh, provinces. So they, there's the rivalry, the the inland rivalry. Apparently, Saskatchewan's football team is not doing well. Okay, wouldn't know. That, that's all I got from that. Anyways, the captain for this flight was Chris Miles. He was 30 years old. At the time, he had 5,173 hours total, of which 2,780 hours were on the 737. What Respectable. Are, what am I doing with my life? He's only two years older than me. Oh. <laughs> the first officer was Peter Van Ort. He was 25, which makes him three years younger than me. <laughs> And he had 4,316 hours total, of which 2,735 were on the 737. He had just a little bit fewer hours on the 737 than the captain. Just a little bit. What are we doing again? I don't know. It's all right. I accept these things. I like what I do. The flight departed Calgary, so it. I should clarify. We're talking about the Calgary to Cranbrook leg, which is obviously... Toward the middle end of this journey of short flights. It's the second flights. to last leg. It is. That what? Oh, what's there's a word for that. Penultimate. That. Thank you. Yes. I only know that word because of the series of unfortunate events. Yes. That. 
And mind you, their day had actually started in Calgary. They had flown from Calgary to Fort McMurray empty first. Or no, they had started in Edmonton. Sorry. They started in Edmonton, went to Fort McMurray first, and then went back to Edmonton, then Calgary, then Cranbrook, then on to Castlegar. They're in Canada. Yes. All very short hops. Just how short? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. The flight departed Calgary at 12.32 p.m. local time with 44 passengers and five crew. The estimated flight time was 23 minutes, <laughs> which was communicated to the company agent at Cranbrook. The flight proceeded on an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan on the high-level airway 505. That was how they got between the two. The flight cruised at 20,000 feet, which was reached at around 12.38 p.m., so pretty quickly. Six minutes after takeoff, to be specific. The Cranbrook Airport is an uncontrolled airport with an air radio, A-E-R-A-D-I-O, you know, like aerodrome, kind of, and aeroplane, mm -hmm. but air radio. Uncontrolled airport with an air radio station that provides communications, weather, and advisory services, but not air traffic control. Yeah, so for anybody who's never done, like, been on a GA aircraft flying around, there are small airports around plenty of states, cities, provinces, whatever, that... Around the world. Yeah, that They're... just, they, the whole, like, you can land at them, but there's nobody there yes. to monitor airspace. So right. that's your job is to use the radio. You're like, hey, in case yes. anyone's there, I'm coming in to land. Yes. Get out of the way. Yes. Hey, in case anyone's there, I'm taking off. Get out of the way. Which, not to pre preface too much, but we will talk a little bit more about that later on. But it is, this is commonplace around most of the world. Including here in the U.S. Very much here. More so than almost anywhere else, actually. There are way more airports on the planet that are uncontrolled than controlled. By quite a large margin. And I know that a lot of people think, oh, well, why weren't you just talking to air traffic? Well, it turns out, actually, most airports are uncontrolled. Not the major ones, obviously. When you talk about big cities, big airports, yeah, they're controlled. Of course they are. But once you start talking about, like, the little airports within those cities, like the little GA airports, a lot of them, no control tower. That being said, though, also many small airports, including this one, fall into the same area as a major air traffic controller so if something goes wrong it's not like you're untethered to the oh, world no absolutely not so in this case if they had an emergency and knew about it they would contact calgary btc yep. because it's so close right and that almost every airport falls under well i shouldn't even say almost every single airport around the world usually falls under some form of air route traffic control center right some center controller. So you can always get in touch with somebody. So to the point, this air radio station, it is manned. There is a person there. That person's job is to provide a weather, communicate any advisories about the airport, and just communicate in general, but cannot give any traffic advisories, does not have radar, can't do anything in terms of air traffic control. While we're on the tangent, there's, it is also worth noting that there are a couple of airports that are experimenting or have implemented, not sure where the status is on that, Having remote air traffic control? Yes, have implemented. There's one here in Colorado. It was one of the first. Fort Collins? Yep. The Specifically the Northern Colorado Regional Airport. So no, no one dare. Not on site. They're off site somewhere. There's a big, like, literally camera tower and a radar and everything. But it feeds to an off site location where there's an air traffic control. Which is bizarre to me. Yes. But then you don't have to build a tower. I can work from home. Not exactly. <laughs> it's not exactly how that works. They still have to go to a facility. It's just not at the airport. We're not that technologically savvy yet. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd want the air traffic controllers to be working from mm. home anyways. You don't want that kind of distraction. They need to be in that sterile environment. Okay. I'm going to continue. The Calgary air traffic controller advised the Cranbrook air radio via landline that the flight was expected to arrive at 1.05 p.m. Local. Oh, the report was in Zulu time. Yes, it was. Seven hours different. At Cranbrook, the weather was snowing. Solid. I mean, it's February. Yes. And Canada. Cranbrook is also in the Canadian Rockies. With a three-quarter mile visibility. So, not great. At the time, a radio-equipped snowplow 
was cleaning the runway at Cranbrook because, you know, snowing. So this radio-equipped snowplow means that he can monitor yeah. the airport's radio. Make sure no one's going to land while he's trying to do his job. Yep. 12.35 p.m., the Cranbrook air radio operator had advised the snowplow about the inbound aircraft with the ETA of 1.05 p.m. The flight was to make a straight-in approach for runway 16 via the Skookum Beacon. That is spelled S-K-O-O-K-U-M Beacon. So that's just a waypoint. They're just making a straight-in for runway 16 at the airport. Just straight. 12.42 p.m., the flight called Calgary ATC and requested descent clearance to Cranbrook. The air traffic controller acknowledged and cleared the flight to descend, as well as clearing the flight for the approach to Cranbrook. So even though the... Cranbrook is a radioed airport only. They have to get approval from Calgary ATC? Yes. Well, they were still in the center control up at the higher altitudes and everything, still with, oh, okay. with Calgary's center air traffic control. But yes, their air route traffic control center. Okay. Got it. To 12.44 p.m. local time, the flight called descending out of 18,000 feet, at which time the Calgary air traffic controller advised the flight to contact the Cranbrook air radio and the flight acknowledged and switched. At 12.45 p.m., so a minute later, the flight made initial contact with the Cranbrook air radio, and a minute after that, the air radio operator passed on the latest weather and runway information to the flight, as well as that snow removal was in progress, and that visibility was very low. So, told him, hey, it's snowing, visibility's low, we're doing some snow clearing, and, you know, it's, it's just, the runway's gonna be what it's gonna be. The flight continued normally straight in on an instrument approach, and ILS specifically, instrument landing system, the, the very accurate. Precise. Yeah, precise, because, you know, precision approach to runway 16 at Cranbrook. Witnesses on the ground at this point, we take over, saw the airplane touch down on the runway about 800 feet past the threshold at 12.55 p.m. local time, at which time the thrust reversers were activated. Almost immediately after touchdown in the reverse thrust activation, however, the reverse was canceled, and instead the aircraft began accelerating for a go-around. The aircraft became airborne again just prior to the 2,000-foot mark past the threshold, which is pretty rapidly, then flying down the runway at about 50 to 70 feet above. A few seconds later, the flaps were changed from 40 degrees to 15 degrees, but the gear was still down, landing gear. 4,000 feet past the threshold. There was a heavy left rudder input briefly. The aircraft climbed to about 300 to 400 feet above the ground as it started to bank steeply to the left. The aircraft then began losing altitude in a side slip attitude, so the airplane is basically falling to the side. Mm -hmm. Falling back to the ground hard, impacting just to the left of the runway, breaking up on impact and causing a large post-crash fire. Quite large. The airplane broke up, and the only things that were recognizable were the cockpit section and the tail section after the fire. The airplane fell basically at almost 90 degrees left wing down and nose down once it impacted, which, not good. Not good. Rescue services and airport personnel rushed to the scene, where they were able to locate and remove seven survivors from the wreckage. However, one of those seven was taken to a hospital and later perished. Mm. The other six survived, including five passengers and two crew, two of which didn't have severe injuries. They were marked as minor, which I am shocked. I'm surprised. One crew and one passenger. The other four crew and 39 passengers perished in the accident, however. So vast majority perished. This was a devastating accident in the snow. And yes, I left a lot out. You had to have? Yep. Because I'm... There will be a couple of very, very big key details that once they are told to you, you will understand right away what actually happened. Also, Nick foreshadowed very well without saying that he foreshadowed. And yes, I did. And people are yelling at Miranda for not having already figured it out. Uh, okay, here's the deal, though. Maybe I have, and I just haven't said anything. <laughs> yes. Have thought about that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> anyway. I mean, obviously there was an issue on the ground after they landed. Yes. Yes, there was. Which could potentially just be the fact that there was a ton of snow on the ground. <laughs> that has something to vaguely do with it. But I have foreshadowed quite well. 
I am proud of myself in the way that I... To be fair, I'm not paying 100% attention because I'm also... It's okay. Working on the cross stitch. But I do know that you picked up on the details I said because you questioned some of it. Mm Mm-hmm. So, this investigation was performed by the Aviation Safety Investigation Division, the predecessor to today's TSB. Yep. This aircraft was equipped with both black boxes and both were found the morning after the accident. However... (laughs) I knew it was coming. Yeah. Both were almost totally destroyed due to prolonged exposure to excessive heat. The not, fire was quite the fire. They were not exposed directly to fire. Mm-hmm. Just heat. Just heat. Ha da 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 da. Yes. Which still shouldn't be a problem in modern black boxes. I feel like emphasis on modern. Yes. This was seventies, my friend. Yes. Some data was able to be retrieved from the FDR's charred tape, visually. Wonderful. To which I'm like, what? Yeah. How? I Who? don't. Okay. I don't know. With extreme difficulty. I can imagine. They had a couple of other errors um, due to the recorder itself. Eight of the parameters, eight of the 16 parameters were seriously affected by a faulty synchro converter. Oh. Whatever that is. Okay. It just means the data was out of sync with itself. Got it. Hate that. I think that's what that means. That make it the sense. There was an error in the acceleration in the value of 0.24 Gs, so they had to manually adjust. The engine one fuel flow monitoring was inoperative. That sucks. Wonderful. Also, the Canadian regulations did not require that the roll angle be a recorded parameter, so it wasn't recorded. Great. Nice. Just wonderful. For an airplane that, mind you, was only nine years old at the time. It wasn't even that old. So. Investigators interviewed the air radio operator and found that the ETA for the aircraft, which had been generated, was 10 minutes later than their actual arrival time. Yeah, you might have noticed that I kept saying they were scheduled to arrive at 1.05 p.m., and they actually touched down at 12.55. Yeah, but airplanes run ahead of schedule all the time. Yes, but this turned out to be very important. The scheduled opportunity to update the ETA would have been when the accident aircraft reported being at the Skookum Beacon. Which they didn't do. They didn't do. And they were supposed to. This was also the usual point at which, during snow conditions, crews would ask for the state of the runway, ensure snow removal crews were clear of the runway, and ultimately report being at the beacon. Did they do that? Nope. Nope. So the snowplow could have definitely just been on the runway. The snowplow was definitely on the runway. Oh! Oh! Now I understand! (laughs) Okay! Now I get why they had to do a go-around! This was especially important, given that the airport was uncontrolled with advisory service. The lack of this contact led the air radio operator to believe that the ETA of 105 was still accurate. The failure to report on final approach as well as unnecessary conversation on company frequency represented an unacceptable standard of, quote, cockpit practice and discipline, end quote. You know what else that means? Bad zero. That. There was no legal requirement for a pilot to make position reports during an instrument approach to an um, uncontrolled airport. Mm-hmm. And investigators point out that the lack of effective regulation here weakened the advisory system, especially at uncontrolled airports. That's foreshadowing. Yep. Since the ETA was 10 minutes later than actual, it was well within reason that a snow removal vehicle was on the runway. Because it was. And due to the nature of its job, it was obscured. Because it was kicking up snow. Oh. I can just see them, like, landing and going... It turns out the snowplow driver thought exactly the same thing. <laughs> Because he saw the airplane in his mirror. Oh, 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 no. Oh, no. Guess what didn't happen? They didn't hit the snowplow. No, but they crashed the airplane. Well, how close they got to the snowplow is also another story. I don't say that. When I said that they were flying 50 to 70 feet above the runway after liftoff, they missed that snowplow by less than 10 feet. What? They lifted off the runway at the backside of the snowplow. They managed to get airborne just, just in time. Could not have been any closer. So that poor snowplow guy had to walk around with poop in his pants all day. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much, except that when I said witnesses saw the airplane touch down and witnesses saw the airplane crash, it was him. Oh. He was the first person on scene. He ran there. He tried to get the snowplow off of the runway, but he was 20 feet from getting it off of the runway when he was overflown. You know, it was sad when you said there was a snowplow out. My brain 100% went, they almost hit the snowplow. Yes. And they did almost. They did almost hit the snowplow. 
That's that why is... I was surprised you didn't say anything. However. I told you I knew what happened. However. I just didn't say anything. Not to steal from you because I know this. I'm just prefacing what comes next, but. I know clearing more clearing stuff. the snowplow, getting airborne again, should not have caused a crash. No, like a hundred percent. I'm just saying. I I definitely question why they did a go around, and then you're talking about the snowplow. You like, missed another it. detail in there that um there we've is, talked about before. Well, let, let me keep going. Yes, I did a very 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 small amount of foreshadowing that doesn't actually have any. No, you flat out said it. Uh, kind of. So the retelling of events then went into the go around itself. Performing a go around requires quick action and reaction. Steps in the procedure include advancing power, reducing flaps from full to 15 degrees, and raising the landing gear. Did this line up with accident events? Mostly. Nah. Eh. The gear was still down. Yes. So the flaps were raised seven seconds before impact instead of immediately. Oh. That's supposed to be a memory item performed by the first officer without being asked to do so. Which arguably was imme- like a memory item, but... Late. Late. And also, I think it was prompted. He's supposed to do that. They're supposed to do that. Yes, probably. And the landing gear was never raised. Furthermore, as the aircraft passed over the snow removal vehicle level, the left thrust reverser slowly deployed in air. Oh, no. Wait, how? There's actually a pretty good explanation for why this happened. Which I will get to in a a wee bit. And Mm -hmm. these are probably bucket reversers, huh? They are bucket reversers, and I don't know if you tell the story... That goes with this, but there's a story. We'll talk about it. We'll talk okay. about it. Cover the details of how, and then I will cover the absolutely tragic story that comes with this. Okay. I take quite a while to get to that part keep of going. how it actually happened. It's fine. Anyway. Just keep covering. Right rudder was applied to correct the asymmetry, an assumption made by the fact that despite the deployment, the plane continued to fly straight. Okay, but here's my problem, and maybe I don't... Wow. That was dramatic. Dramatic. Um, maybe I don't quite understand as much as I think I do, but to have it go into reverse, doesn't it have to go past like the opposite direction of where it should be going? Again, we'll talk about the mechanics it's... of what happened. This was a very mechanical system, and there's a reason why this happened. Part of the thing that I dead expected you to yell about was the fact that they uh, decided to do a go-around after thrust reversers were deployed. Yeah, I mean... Which is definitely not no, a great No, it's thing. not great. Yeah, definitely not a good idea. No, but like they didn't want to hit the snowplow, well, so I understand why they did it. Yes, however, this airplane is not meant to do such things. So, let me keep going. Yeah. So, after continuing to fly straight, subsequently, that corrective action, the, the right rudder, was then um, no longer applied and or possibly applied left rudder. Kind of hard to tell, given the uh, lack of data mm-hmm. with which to back that up with mm-hmm. and the aircraft yawed and rolled to the left mm-hmm. so either that corrective measure was removed it was or removed and negated it was and it's part of the horribly harrowing tragic story i will tell after you finish okay given that visibility was three quarters of a mile coupled with the snow sweeper throwing up its own snow with snow as a background it was reasonable that the pilots were taken by surprise at the presence of a snow sweeper which explains why they had selected reverse thrust until they saw the runway incursion. So they are not faulted for not seeing the snow plow until they did. But they knew there was a snow plow on the runway. It was their fault that it wasn't off because they didn't say anything about it. Yes. yes. But they knew there was a, a snow plow on the runway. They're not blamed for not seeing it ahead of time. Well, no. yeah, no, I get That's, that. It was That's very hard to making. see in the low visibility. Investigators attempted to explain why the right rudder was released and possibly moved to left rudder leading to impact, and they came up with several possibilities, one of which was actually tied to the results of the autopsy. The first possibility was that whoever was applying the rudder may have inadvertently stopped when they reached for the thrust reverser override switch, which is on the ceiling panel. Mm. Which is the story I will tell. Oh, okay. The second possibility came to be when the coroner pointed out that the captain's thumb was broken, paramortem. Yes, it was. Like, right before death. Medical opinion from the autopsy findings suggests that the injury was caused by both pilots exerting heavy pressure against the power level lever, with the first officer bracing his hand over the captain's to the point of breaking his thumb. Yes, they were literally both pushing so fast and so hard forward. That the first officer broke the captain's thumb. The throttles to go around that the first officer broke the captain's thumb underneath his. Ouch. Mm -hmm. Investigators listed out a number of stress-inducing factors outside of the broken thumb. 
that would have contributed to the poor performance <clears throat> CRM before the term CRM mm-hmm. of the captain and many also may apply to the first officer. Did they list them for the first officer? No. One, the surprise at seeing the obstruction on the runway. Yep. Mm-hmm. The uncertainty as to whether the aircraft would clear the obstruction. Yeah, that's stressful. Yep. Concern about the caution in the Boeing 737 operations manual. Quote, do not attempt to go around after reverse thrust has been initiated. End quote. Right. Seeing the thrust reverser indicator lights illuminated. Confusion due to interpretation of information in the Boeing 737 operations manual. The unexpected deployment of the left thrust reverser. Realization that full approach flap was still selected. Possible lack of positive assistance from the less experienced first officer. Mm-hmm. Probable extreme annoyance about the equipment being on the runway. Fair. And the urgent need to analyze the deteriorating situation and attempt to have the first officer operate the thrust reverser override switch. Investigators also point out that the crew was exposed to an unusual set of circumstances. The manual does point out that go-around after touchdown and reverse thrust initiation should not be performed, and there was no training for it if you required it for whatever reason. They could not have known that it was possible for a thrust reverser to deploy in flight. So, how did the thrust reverser deploy? Yeah. It happened because the retraction cycle was interrupted by a design which caused hydraulic power to be removed from that thrust reverser door mechanism. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's supposed to push the door closed, the hydraulics, were interrupted. So it just kind of floated open. So. The system was not designed to cover the case of a balked landing after a reverse thrust had been initiated. Right. So the, the thrust reverser was designed under the assumption that you would not need to go around after reverse thrust was selected. Right. So normally the reset would be done at basically no speed or low speed, at which stowage. point. Stowage. Right. The stowage. So, in other words, while the air, after the airplane is slowed down completely and it's taxing off, that reverse thruster, you know, the, the thrust reverser could stow under not a lot of power. It could come back to normal, back to stowed. Mm-hmm. However, because it was interrupted and then given a lot of force, as it tried to stow, it doesn't have enough power to restow under all that force. Mm-hmm. So it was left five degrees open, which isn't much, but that was enough that once they started getting airspeed, the wind literally picked it back up since it's a bucket and flopped back open, which is why then it was suddenly a very mechanical thrust reverser. Yes. Doing a very mechanical thrust reverse. <laughs> so there, there had been some doubt about the uh, design. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that's f- horrible design. <laughs> uh, funny because this was one of the most used engines in history. Dude, I get it. Yep. Bad design. DC-9, 737, 727. This thing was used so much. So, a caution was added as an amendment to the 737 manual in September of 1977, eight years after the introduction of the aircraft into service. And the caution reads, Do not attempt to go around after reverse thrust has been initiated. Failure of a thrust reverser to return to the forward thrust position may prevent a successful go-around. No Yep. But if you know that, why don't you find a way to fix it? There is a fix, and that's part of the story. But the same manual states that when the reverser unlock light is illuminated, and if the forward thrust lever has not moved to idle and the movement of the lever is unrestricted, the engine must be in forward thrust, which mm-hmm. was not the case. No. During the accident, both thrust levers were in forward thrust and unrestricted, even though the left thrust reverser was deployed. The manual overall was unclear and could have misled the pilots. The Canadian investigators point out that the aircraft ideally should have, if not essentially, should have the ability to abort landing even after touchdown and reverse selection, and they deemed that the FAA standards must be considered either inadequate or ill-defined. Well, I agree with that. The general standard hasn't actually changed. The worldwide acceptance is once the thrust reversers have activated, Don't you- you're not going around. Because it cannot be assured that you can do so safely at any point in time after that, no matter the airplane, for so many different circumstances. It's not to say it can't be pulled off, but it is a far more dangerous situation to do than an aborted takeoff, for example. So, want me to tell the story? Yeah, okay. I'm done. That's, that's all I got. So the autopsy is what led them, as well as the way they found the crash site, is what led them to be able to understand more of what happened. Immediately after they... Did this go around, basically, or this retake off? Yes, the light came on for the thrust reverser. They found the first officer not strapped to his seat. 
They believe he stood up. To try to reach To reach the, the switch to reactivate the hydraulics that would stow the thrust reverser. That was six seconds before impact. At the same time, the captain, who was likely extremely preoccupied with his broken thumb and had been applying rudder force to negate the Reverse. heavy... Yeah, asymmetry. Asymmetry, thanks to the reverser. He released that in pain, which threw the first officer to the ground right before he could reach the switch. Which ruined the whole thing, because beyond that point, there was no saving the airplane. After that, they could not put enough. They, they tested this. There was no way, after he released the rudder pedal, which he was putting an insane amount of force on, there was no way after that for them to put enough force on the rudder pedal or the ailerons to correct what had happened in time, because he had put left input. By that point, it was too late. So unfortunately, the story is incredibly harrowing. And mind you, all of that happened in less than 20 seconds. My thumb hurts. <laughs> Thinking about his broken thumb? Yeah. Yes. I don't like it. He thought a lot about his broken thumb in those last few seconds, probably, because that was... That would have hurt like an absolute... Absolutely. Also, the fact that the first officer broke his thumb. I mean, I can understand exactly how that happened when both of you all of a sudden see this thing at the same time and slam your hands on the throttle all the way forward as hard as you can. If your thumb's not in the right place, he's going to smash that thumb. Oh, like if like if he had grabbed it and his thumb was underneath his hand and then the first officer put it on top. I yep. I mean, it can happen. I mean, it happened probably in a half a second. Would, in my brain, I'm like, OK, I'm going to grab the throttle levers. My thumb's on the outside. Mm -hmm. But if it's under the thrust lever. Yep. Yeah. Or if his hand was in any weird way on there and the, the first officer pinned it and they both pushed forward super hard broke the thumb i mean so now that everyone's real uncomfortable about their right thumb um yeah let's take a break yes <laughs> so to all the other stuff very dramatic hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, we're back. There actually are no safety recommendations. Or a probable cause. Or a probable cause. There are, whatever, however, conclusions, which are findings. This is exactly how it's labeled. And we have some safety actions to report. And we do have some safety actions to report because, of course, this raises a lot of interesting questions. But let's talk about the findings first. I'm going to read all of these because there are a whole eight of them. They take up one page. And they are actually all pretty pertinent. I actually don't mind the way they wrote these out. The font that they use, though, is... Questionable. Interesting. It's like... It's not. Miranda. The font is just kind of. You know, it reminds me of the font that Heather has on her phone. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. It's like middle school. Yeah. Handwriting. Like, hand, <laughs> well, like that's definitely like the font I had like when I first got a phone in middle school. Yeah. That's what I put on my phone. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I still know a lot of people that do it this way. And I'm like, I don't, it just weirds me out. It's I only weird. know Heather. Yeah. I know other. I know other people that have it, but I don't. I don't like it. Anyways. They found that the estimated time of arrival of the aircraft at Cranbrook, calculated by Calgary ATC and used by air radio for advisory purposes, was considerably an error and resulted in a traffic conflict between the arriving aircraft and a vehicle working on the runway. They found that the flight crew did not report by the Skookum Beacon on final approach, as was the normal practice at Cranbrook, thereby allowing the incorrect ETA to remain undetected. I highlighted that word for a reason, because the next point is what makes this pertinent. They found that regulatory provisions concerning mandatory pilot position reporting during instrument approaches were inadequate. That is key. That is paramount. They weren't required. To they report. were not required to make a reporting call. Which they should have, because then the plow wouldn't have been on the... They, they stated that it is normal practice, and that is definitely true. And it was definitely advised, and it was very much should have been required on this day. However, it's not required by the government in Canada. Was not. Was not. I'm sure it is now. We'll talk about that, because that brought up some interesting conversation. But that was a really big key detail in all of this, actually. 
They found that the interfaces between the organizations providing air traffic services, telecommunications or air radio, and airport services were not well enough developed to provide a reliable fail-safe flight information service. So the services available for the Cranbrook Airport in specific were not enough to give the pilots enough of an idea what to expect. Okay. Basically, is what they determined. Well, having the air radio gives a pretty good amount of information, not having either air traffic control or just proper communications and radar doesn't do them any good. I don't know. I mean, they were given the information that the plow was on the runway. They were given information that there were snow removal processes happening. Which probably means... There's either a guy out there with a shovel. Right. <laughs> or there's a plow on the runway. Right. So. They found that the pilots lost control of the aircraft consequent upon the left engine thrust reverser deploying in flight when the aircraft was at low speed and in a high drag configuration. Yeah. I mean, when that happens. There's not much. You there's, can do. I mean, Lauda Flight 4. Yes. Go back and listen to that episode. Yes. Because. It's done. If it happens, you're done. Unfortunately, it is a very uncontrollable situation. It is very, very, very difficult to The asymmetry that. is really hard to counteract. Yes, and this one in particular, this accident, was especially difficult because they were at such a low speed and... And low altitude. Low altitude and very high drag coefficient. Yeah. Because flaps were heavily deployed and gear was down. That was not a good situation. They found that the FAA design standards under which the Boeing 737 was constructed did not adequately provide for the possibility of an aborted landing after touchdown and thrust reverser initiation. Again, it's not that it's necessarily impossible, but the 737 was a known thing that you're not supposed to do, and actually that still really hasn't changed. Aircraft, you're just not supposed to do that once the thrust reverser is deployed. At that point, you are stopping. You all may have noted, um, uh, seen the video quasi-recently. Of a fire truck becoming a runway incursion. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in the last year, I think. Mm-hmm. Time is an illusion. Yeah, they didn't try to do a go-around. No. They already deployed thrust reversers. Yeah, because it's not safe to do so. It's not. It's not. And unfortunately, that one was a really bad situation that was unavoidable to them. Mm-hmm. As would have been this. And I understand how bad that could have been. But hitting... A ground vehicle. Right. Probably is much less deadly than what happened. Arguably, it could have been, yeah. Not necessarily. We don't know for sure. And I don't want to be the one to find out, that's for sure. But. But that's not what happened. There's so many more risks to going around once the thrust reversers are deployed, especially in a bucket type. But even today on newer types of thrust reversers, there's no guarantee that you're going to have those come back. So it's just not a good idea. Well, and with their snow and stuff on the runway and Mm -hmm. who knows what would have happened. It sucks for sure. I understand why they tried to do go around, though. Like, yes, they didn't want to hit. Of course not. Right. But then they found themselves in a worse situation. And they (laughs) ended up losing their lives. Would they have lost their lives if they hit the snowplow? Don't know. Really just don't know. But it was a split-second decision they had to make. Yep. And they didn't want to hit the snowplow. Right. So. Right. These last couple are interesting. They found that the lack of a suitable national system of incident reporting, investigation, and follow-up corrective action allowed operational problems to remain uncorrected. Basically, they were saying, we don't really have a true NTSB form of... Notification. Notification investigation, and correction, which is why this report doesn't have them. Therefore, things like this were able to persist in Canadian aviation yeah, at the time. We should fix that. Right. I guess what? They did. Yeah, because now they have the TSB. Yes, the TSB. Canadian TSB. The Canadian TSB. Right. So, this was one of those things that led to that, one of those accidents that led to that existing. In the last one, They found that rescue efforts at the accident scene were hampered due to lack of a firefighting vehicle capable of negotiating... Navigating? Nope, negotiating. (laughs) Deep snow and shortage of trained rescue personnel. Y'all, you're in Canada. Yes. In the snow, in the Rockies, at an airport. That's... Prime time, yeah. Yeah. Prime time, you're going to need some people. And you're going to need some equipment. 
They didn't have it. Hence, the airplane burned. That was actually, they didn't really spend a lot of time on this at all, but I think that that was probably what made this far deadlier, was the fact that they couldn't get firefighting services there quick enough that were adequate. So, unfortunately, that's where things lie. Now, again, there's no probable cause for this, although it's pretty obvious. Runway incursion, attempted go-around after thrust reverser deployment, design of the thrust reversers on the Boeing 737. And And a lack of standardized pilot reporting. Correct. So. There, we made up a probable cause thing. There you go. So, let's talk about the pilot reporting thing for a sec. Because this gets interesting. So, fun fact, Canada has their aviation regulations online. Yes, as most modern governments do. Hey, FAA. They do. Can you make it not a paywall thing? Yeah. I would like to not pay for that. But that's how they get to publish the far aim. People pay for it. But you can pay for it once in the app, and then you have it for life. Every time it gets updated, it's there. Otherwise, you have to buy the book every year. Which It is should be silly. free! You would think. It's as close as the government was willing to get to free. It's published law! Okay, Christy, we live in the United <laughs> States. Remember who you're talking about. And the fact right. that every time someone has the flu, they have to pay thousands of dollars to go to the hospital. Right. <laughs> yes. So, in Canada, it did change vastly. It actually became a requirement that when operating at airports without towers, and this is particularly pertinent to the airlines, but it actually became a requirement for all aircraft, whether VFR or IFR, that they have a standardized reporting system, entrance to the airport's pattern, and standardized approach reporting. One thing that I found fascinating, and I did not include the screenshots I sent to you, Mm -hmm. um, one of the regulations is that unless otherwise instructed, when you are doing pattern work at an uncontrolled airport, you have to do left-hand turns. Yes. In Canada, that is true. And in the U.S., this is a recommendation. It's a recommendation, not a It's a heavy, heavy, heavy recommendation. But, yeah. So, I thought that was fascinating. Yep. We'll talk about what goes on in the U.S. with all this in just a minute. But we're going to talk about Canada first. They are the pertinent ones here. Right. So, I'm going to read these outright, these few screenshots we have, because this will give a decent overview of what the regulations are. Do you remember what MF stands for? Mandatory frequency area. That's right. Mandatory frequency. So mandatory frequency means that it exists, basically, so you should use it. Mm-hmm. Mandatory frequencies are also anything anywhere under or near major airspace, which this applies. You need to be on the damn radio. Yep. So under mandatory frequency reporting procedures on arrival, which is 602.101 of the Canadian regulations, aviation regulations, by the way, it reads... The pilot in command of a VFR aircraft arriving at, a, at an uncontrolled aerodrome that lies within an MF, mandatory frequency area, shall report A, before entering the MF area, and where circumstances permit, shall do so at least five minutes before entering the area, giving the aircraft's position, altitude, and estimated time of landing, and the pilot in command's arrival procedure intentions. B, when joining the aerodrome traffic circuit, or pattern, giving the aircraft's position in the pattern. C, when on the downwind leg, if applicable. D, when on final approach. And E, when clear of the surface on which the aircraft has landed. So I am clear of the runways. That's for VFR. Now I know you're going, wait a minute, what about IFR? There's a whole other one for that. Reporting procedures for IFR aircraft when approaching or landing at an uncontrolled aerodrome, which is 602.104. This one... Is a little hard to read out, but we're going to do it. One, this section applies to persons operating IFR aircraft when approaching or landing at an uncontrolled aerodrome, whether or not the aerodrome lies within an MF area. That is, period. If you're on an instrument flight rules flight plan, which would have qualified this flight entirely, doesn't matter where you were going, you have to do this. Two, the pilot in command of an IFR aircraft who intends to conduct an approach to or a landing at an uncontrolled aerodrome shall report A. The pilot in command's intentions regarding the operation of the aircraft, which is one five minutes before the estimated time of commencing the approach procedure, stating the estimated time of landing, which would have been really important here. Two, when commencing a circling maneuver. And three, as soon as practicable after initiating a missed approach procedure. And then B, the aircraft's position at one, when passing the fixed outbound, 
where the pilot in command intends to conduct a procedure turn or if no procedure turn is intended. When like in this case. Right, like in this case, because they were doing a straight in. When the aircraft first intercepts the final approach course, like the ILS. Two, when passing the final approach fix, or three minutes before the estimated time of landing where no final approach fix exists. This all would have been super helpful here. And three, on final approach. All of that would have fixed this whole incident. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened. But, unfortunately, this incident happened, and thus it led to the regulations, right? So those regulations exist for a reason. The last screenshot is from 602.99, which is before either one of these sections. This is for MF reporting procedures before entering a maneuvering area. The pilot in command of a VFR or IFR aircraft that is operated at an uncontrolled aerodrome that lies within an MF area shall report the pilot in command's intentions before entering the maneuvering area of the aerodrome, which also still would have helped. All of that was the biggest change that Canadian regulations went through. So I know you're going, okay, that's Canada. But what about the U.S. with its super busy airspace? Unfortunately, I have to say that actually we're a little behind this. Oh, dang it. Now, that doesn't mean that this doesn't happen. And most pilots follow best practice. I should say almost every pilot follows best practices here. However, the U.S. regulations still allow for aircraft to land at uncontrolled airports without speaking to anybody. That is a possibility. There are circumstances where that is possible. Not suggested, not a good idea, because guess what? Just a few years ago, right here in Telluride, Colorado, a private jet flying in from Mexico during ski season, I believe this was in like February sometime, landed on the runway in Telluride and did what? Struck a snowplow. Because they never spoke to anybody over the radio. And guess what? Nothing changed. They were actually within their right to do so. Uh, highly, uh, highly, yeah. highly, 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 highly unrecommended. Um, There's a lot of pilots that have pushed for regulations stating that you absolutely have to talk over the radio and do your reporting positions. However, the reason that this keeps getting negated, not to interrupt, the reason this keeps getting negated is because there are still a handful of aircraft allowable in the United States that don't have radios equipped and legally are allowed to do so. Crop dusters. Crop dusters, like original Piper Cubs, and ultralights. We've had this technology for eons. Yes. What the hell? You can probably retrofit it, too. It's mm, not like... Some of these aircraft, not necessarily. They don't have the electric, the electronic equipment and, you know, capable of handling anything like that. Which is why this is still allowed. Most of these aircraft aren't allowed in Canada, which is why... Okay, they well can then regulate it at that level. Make a grandfather clause for those few. Which is pretty much what they did. The FAR, the FAR AIM, which is the Federal Aviation Regulations and beyond, actually state that when operating in or at an airport, an uncontrolled airport, there's very specific ones for CTAF versus Unicom versus... They, they have a whole chart. Anyways, all of these different things mean different configurations at airports, whether they have unmanned radio, manned radio without radar, con, you know, a common frequency. There's, there's a whole different sets of procedures for all of these. However, they all state, and I will, here, let me see if I can pull up the chart because I think I still have it open. And not only does such a recommendation slash future regulation um, prevent ground collisions, it also prevents mid-air collisions. That's what I was going to say. Like when we were- Absolutely. When we were in Portland with your dad- Dude. There was a guy circling around- Pretty close to us, and he would not talk on the radio. Like, we didn't know what he was doing. Right. What airport was that? your dad was constantly on the radio, like, hey. This is what we're doing. Here we are. This is where we are. Here's our altitude. The guy was at the same altitude as us. The only reason we know that is because your dad had the iPad out, right? Yep. Um, And fortunately, the other plane had a transponder, so we could figure that out. But if he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't required to have a transponder. Right. Or Or it it doesn't have to be turned on. We were over Hood River. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, it's dangerous. These things it's happen. so yeah. dangerous. And this is why I say, like, the GA world is very hard to regulate by comparison compared to airlines, and it is still kind of the wild west of aviation. It's, while there's a lot of regulation, there's a lot of modern equipment, there's a lot of technology that's come to the forefront that's allowed for safer flying, accidents still happen on a very, very, very 
common, very broad scale in GA because it's there's so it's so much the wild west of aviation. Well, it's so hard to regulate it. And it's really frustrating because you I mean, fortunately, I spotted him. I was yes. like, there's an aircraft right there. Yep. Your dad's like, what the hell is this guy doing? Yep. And we didn't know because he wasn't talking on the radio. Like right. he wasn't responding. Right. And it and he w- ended up being right behind us at one point. And your dad's mm-hmm. like, I guess I'm going down a few thousand feet. Yeah. Your dad was feet. also like, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't and be comfortable we were, around somebody like that. Either. We were landing at Keyway. So he we went around and then landed at Keyway. Yes. But- yeah. But Keyway is also a good example of an uncontrolled airport that has someone monitoring the radio. Right. Yep. Because that's it's basically a privately owned yeah, airport. It is privately owned. Yep. But like when we have our when we have lines and stuff, someone, everyone is listening to the radio because they just have it blasting on a speaker. So yep. we all know to get off the damn runway. Yep. But you also do a flyover to make sure that there are no runway incursions because there is no right. runway and safety area. Right. Not a keyway. <laughs> right. So anyways, going back to the Federal Aviation Regulations in the right. U.S., here's how it reads specifically, and this is for everything that's uncontrolled, quote-unquote uncontrolled. On the outbound, this is from the chart, all of them state this, on the outbound, you should make calls before taxiing and before taxiing on the runway for departure. On the inbound, you should be calling 10 miles out, entering the downwind, base, and final, as well as when you leave the runway, which is very much similar to Canadian regulations. However, none of this is required, I guess, uh, again, in certain circumstances, quite a few circumstances, actually. But this is the recommended communication procedures. It literally reads summary of recommended communication procedures in the Federal Aviation Regulations. That's how far away we are from actually making that a requirement. How much money do we have to pay to make that word change to required? <laughs> um... It's More not a matter. We have. It's not a matter of money. It's a mon- It's a matter of being outnumbered. I want to bribe the FAA to there, change one word in the F- FAR. There are still so many different little businesses, uh, people that have airplanes, you know, that aren't equipped with radios or don't fly at major airports, that literally are unwilling to let this change. It's surprising. And I understand me. To, to some extent. I do understand why. However, it's not doing enough good for the aviation industry to still be going without when we are so busy in the I have United a proposed States. compromise. Yes. Can we make it part of 121 and 135? It is. In 121 and 135 operations, they must communicate at certain reporting points, but theirs are very specific and usually it's company driven anyways. However, federal aviation regulations still require that those operators make calls when going so they into are uncontrolled indirectly airports. required. Yes. Okay. Well, pretty directly, actually. Them, they are. Okay. Anybody in 121, 135. That's standard. They have to make calls. that would have prevented this. Right. They have to make calls when going in and out of... And that still leaves those Part 91s to do whatever the hell they're doing. That's the big problem. It's because Part 91. Part 91 is still 90% of aviation in the United States. So. <laughs> Ergo, don't be an Use your radio. Yes. You should. So. Don't be an Use your radio. Yes. Have you guys ever... <laughs> And even then, like, you can get a little, like, handheld radio, and you could use that. Use that! So, just saying. Just saying. Anyways. Have have we we seen what? Have we ever what? So, I I don't know how many YouTube videos you watch of Chris Collins. No. Nope. Chris. Oh, yes. Yeah, call me Chris. I haven't seen one. Call me Chris. Call me Chris. But she'll say something in her videos, and she'll do this, and then her editor, Jay, will screenshot it, and go, and whatever it was, and I'll have Chris going like this. And I'm like, I feel like I just did that. Don't be an a- Use your radio. Thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> and then the little thing comes up and goes, don't be an a- Use your radio. Yeah, yep. Just so everybody's aware, this is probably cut in now, hopefully, Paige. Maybe. Do the magic. Anyway. The magic. Christy needs to take a break. Her tummy's not feeling well. So we're going to end the episode without her. Yes. There was not much more to talk about. This was an interesting one. It changed a lot of things. It does still raise some very pertinent conversations in the United States, as well as a lot of other places, although most places in the, around the world, general aviation is nowhere near as big of an industry. So this doesn't become as much of an issue as it does in the United States. However, around the world, there's a lot more regulations around requiring people to do reporting and communications at uncontrolled airport, which is a very pertinent thing. And of course, we talk about the thrust reverser thing, really the ultimate thing that changed there was nothing. But that 
you're not supposed to go around once the thrust reversers are activated. Because it's just not safe. It's just not a good situation. It's an unstable, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Not to say that a thrust reverser would accidentally pop out now because we don't have bucket reversers anymore, but... Not a lot anyways. There's still some. There, but, I mean, there's old air, older aircraft that have yes. them, but... A lot of private jets still have bucket type. Mm-hmm. You'd be amazed. That's how they still build them. But ultimately, it's just... It's it's not good practice to try to go take off again once thrust reversers have activated. There's so many dangers with it. There's so many dangers with the procedures. There's so many dangers with runway length. There's so many procedures. There's so many problems with that period. And there's a lot of airports in the world, too, where it's only one way in, one way out. So you're not going around once you've yeah. touched down and the reversers have activated. You're just not. Like Aspen and Eagle. Like, it's not going to happen. No, because there's, there's no way to do that. Nope. It's too dangerous. So this is... This changed a lot of things, and it also created the NTSB, one of the catalysts creating the NTSB, or the TSB, in Canada, which was a very much needed thing because then it allowed them to regulate the industry a lot more as well as have a lot more oversight. It eventually led to, there were, let me put it this way, there were an insane amount of airlines in Canada. I know there's a lot of people that are arguing that maybe right now there's starting to be too many because all of a sudden there's all these brand new Airlines in Canada, to put, to put in perspective, the narrow body market literally increased by almost 100% in two years in Canada, which is insane, adding that many aircraft to the market, that many flights. And it needed to happen a little bit because there, we got to the point in Canada where there was a lot of monopolies and money. It yeah. was expensive Being to fly. Air Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and WestJet. <laughs> it became very expensive for Canadians to fly anywhere. So it needed to happen a little bit. There definitely needed to be a lot more competition. However, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were a lot of little carriers in and throughout Canada. There were a lot of major carriers in and throughout Canada. And there was too little regulation and too much ability for these airlines to exist without having oversight, which led to a lot of issues. I mean, we've talked about some of the other accidents that were caused because of that. But this one was no different. This was not a really big carrier in in Canada, but they were paramount. This accident was paramount in making some change mm-hmm. to Canadian regulations and allowing the industry to kind of start to even out because there was a lot of danger to it in Canada. And it, don't get me wrong, Canada was the Wild West of aviation too, much like Alaska is still today, because that's how they needed to get goods around and people and... That's how industry started to operate throughout Canada uh, on a much larger scale. And it needed to happen. That's how Alaska literally just functions these days is small air travel. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Right. That was Pacific Southwest? No, Pacific Western. Western. Pacific, Pacific Western, Western Flight 314? Yes. Haha, I remembered. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Uh, remember to do all the stuff. The stuff. Give us your money. Money, money, uh, money. <laughs> which, again, is obviously a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. But if you would like to get some extra content, there's a lot of extra content on Patreon, so you can go ahead and check that out. And uh, you can be a, f- a free person on Patreon. You don't really get anything for that, but you can. Nope. Apparently, that's a thing. I've thought about le- recently whether or not we should create a $1 tier, and I don't know what that would entail. I don't know what, the, what we would do with that, M- like, if anything, <laughs> other than, like, ad-free. Maybe just have it be ad-free and you don't right. get, like, merch or anything like that. Right. Because our $2 tier comes with a sticker sheet. Yes, it does. So that's what you get for, like, an extra dollar. But I was thinking about adding a $1 tier, not for any particular reason other than I've seen a lot of a lot of creators on Patreon have started or have a $1 tier. tier. I don't know. If you're listening to this, tell us your thoughts. Yeah. If should, you we have create a, <laughs> should we create a $1 tier on Patreon for not... Not a whole lot of reason, but I mean, if you're, if it would like entice you into joining, let sure. us know. Yeah. I mean, you never know. Let us know. Uh, if you ever, like, we haven't talked about this in a while, but we have four tiers currently. Mm-hmm. We have uh, economy yep. class, which is the $2 tier. Right. You get ad-free episodes and a sticker sheet. Yep. Which Paige is wonderful and sends out to you because we're disasters. Yes, we are. Uh, and but the then, sticker sheet's really cool. It's just, it's all the different variations of our logo and stuff. And they're, they're literally little stickers, but they're great. Like water bottle stickers yeah. or, or like, if you're like us, like instrument case stickers and things like that, like they're just cool little yeah. stickers. 
And then we have business class, which is our $5 tier, mm-hmm. which you get a lot of stuff for that. You get our post episodes. You get the ad-free episodes. Yep. You get the blooper reels. You get a sticker sheet and a button. Um, yeah. You really get a lot of stuff for that one. Like going up one tier yeah. gets you a, a lot of good stuff. And then we have our first class tier, which is our $10 tier, which you get everything from the other two tiers. And then you get Miranda Sodes and Miranda Post Episodes. And uh, you get a patch. Yes. And you get and you get discounts on merch, too, for yep. $5. So $5 is 5%. $10 is 10%. And then our final tier is Flight Crew, which is our $20 tier, which gets mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And you get a notebook that says flight crew on it yep and you also get 15 percent off merch right. and you get to join live streams with us right month. The, the zoom calls the zoom calls which is a wonderful thing we have met so many of our 20 dollars patrons and we've met some of you in person none but, of the american ones no so. which is kind of strange but, <laughs> but we always have so much fun on those calls they're they're scheduled for two hours and they often go over that and they really are wonderful, like, meet and greet. We just chit-chat about everything and anything in between. We have a great time. I love meeting people, and I love seeing what people are doing, hearing what people are doing, how they found us. It's just such a cool thing. So that's always a cool way for us to interact, but you also get really great benefits with that. You get really great benefits with really all the tiers, because the sticker sheets are super high quality. The patches are really high quality. Like, I really like the things we have and we offer. It's pretty cool. see if we need to get more patches. We haven't had to get patches since we started the podcast. I know. Wow. I know. I don't even know how we go about getting those again. <laughs> all right. Well, either way, if you would like to check that out, all that information's on our website. It's also on Patreon. Um, yep. And fun fact, I also link our Patreon page in the episode notes. Yep. You're, you're welcome. So yep. <laughs> go ahead. You can go down to the... Um, Whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, you can see it in the... Episode in, the, notes. in the episode notes so yeah, the description thank you so much for listening we do appreciate it uh make sure you check out all the other cool stuff too like the merch page and the newsletters yep the website everything do all stuff and remember you can get signed ducks from us still yes we haven't gotten a lot of people that have asked for those those are free they are free we have them all signed pre-signed we have them all pre-signed this time so they're ready to go you just gotta say i want one yep or I want the, three. Okay, yes, because we'll you, you get three, one from each of us. Uh, if you want any from the staff, you do have to email us and specify that. Yes. Staff meaning Caitlin and Paige. Yes. We would have to order more ducks because we don't have any more to, to sign. <laughs> yes. But, <laughs> but, you know. But it certainly is doable. So uh, we hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.